We are continuing in our sermon series, uh, looking at uh, the Old Testament prophetical works, especially the minor prophets. And uh, this morning we uh, come to uh, one of the shortest, in fact, the second shortest of all the minor prophetical works. Only Obadiah is shorter. There's just 38 verses. And I know it felt like we read all 38 verses there. We actually didn't. Um, but Haggai was a prophet to uh, God's people in the post-exilic era of God's people. So this summer we have seen, we have, we have recalled how God's people, both Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, and the southern kingdom, the southern tribe of Judah, were both taken into exile through Assyria, through Babylon. Um, but by 500... Uh, BC, uh, the kingdom, the empire of Persia had expanded and engulfed both Babylon and Assyria and was the most powerful uh, empire in all of the ancient Near Eastern world. Its borders in 500 BC spanned from western northern Africa all the way to modern day India. It was a monster. And we are told around this time in 2 Chronicles 36, that the king at that time, Cyrus, his heart was stirred by Yahweh the Lord, and he actually made a decree and sent all of the Israelites back to their homeland and said, go and make rebuild your temple. And he commissioned them and sent them back. And so 50,000 people returned from exile back to their homeland. And so the passage before us is about 20 years after God's people started to return in Jeru to Jerusalem. So with that background, will you pray with me one more time as we engage this passage to see what God might have to teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we come into this place, however we find ourselves this morning, whether we come in with great joy, that when we woke up this morning, there was actually a genuine enthusiasm to be back here with other friends, with other brothers and sisters in the faith, to be worshiping you. Whether that's our story or on the other end, it took everything within us, if not just habit, to get us here this morning. Truth be told, we are not in a happy season. Truth be told, perhaps there are some among us that are hurting right now, that are in pain emotionally and spiritually. And it took everything just to get here this morning. Father, some of us here may be coming in with strong faith. Some of us not even yet believing these things. However, we find ourselves anywhere in between in all the complexities that all of us bring into this place. Would you convince us that it is no accident, however we find ourselves here, that we are meeting with you now? Would you show us by, your, by and through your spirit that you are here because you have something you want us to hear, not from me, but from you. Jesus, that's our prayer. You have the words of eternal life. Speak them now through me, around me, in spite of me, I pray. But speak them now for your sake. Amen. Uh, in uh, 1998, uh, my wife Jen and I bought our first and only home that we've ever owned in our 27 years of marriage. And we, when we bought the house, it was uh, 
kind of a fixer-upper. I mean, they, they had taken care of it, but it wasn't going to be enough room, and so we were going to expand on the back, add a master bedroom and a bath, and we hired a contractor to do that, but I grew up watching uh, this old house, so I knew what I was doing uh, when it comes to rehabbing a house, and so uh, I convinced Jen that I would redo our kitchen, and so... Uh, so we, we start, we move in and man, with great enthusiasm, I remember, I remember uh, we actually had a party with friends over and gave everybody a hammer and we started knocking down this wall. I was basically gonna move a wall. First I was gonna move a wall back about two feet to give more room in the kitchen. Uh, that part went gloriously well. It's easy to take down a wall. Um, and then, uh, then we actually, uh, we, we, I had another wall, I framed another wall and it was all ready to go. My, I mean, I measured everything. And so after we got it down, my friends, we breathed the wall in and we set that up. Perfect fit in place. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it fit in place. And um, that's up. And then uh, I spent the next uh, several months. I had ordered the cabinets. They started coming in and countertops. And um, uh, it stopped going so well. <laughs> um, and you know, there's, as you're putting up cabinet, there's, there's like, there's nuances in, in how the, the, the walls are shaped. It's an older house, there's plaster, there's lath. I mean, there's, I'm learning new ter terms like soffits and how does this fit here and how does that fit here? And um, it got very discouraging. And um, to the point where I was like, I don't know if I'm ever gonna be able to finish this. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. <laughs> and um, fortunately or unfortunately, um, it's, it was actually a mixed bag. Um, Jen and I went on vacation, and um, as the plumbers were working on the new master bedroom, um, they were putting a new hot water heater and didn't fully sweat one of the elbow joints. And our contractor walked into the house the next day, and we got a call from him, and he said, he walked into our house, and he said, it, it looked like it was raining in your living room. The, the, the elbow of, of the, one of the, the pipes, it, it eventually had a little hole in it where they didn't fully solder it. It eventually burst, and for 12 hours straight, we had a garden hose in our attic, uh, and basically filling up to a rafter and then moving over to the next one, filling that up, moving over. And you could just kind of see in our, when, you know, when we walked in the den, you could see the progress of, yeah, there's a lot more water over here, and you can see it's, it's, it's been working its way down. The end of that, I mean, that was horrible. That's a whole other sermon illustration, maybe to work in at some other time. <laughs> but what that meant was, because it affected our kitchen, their insurance had to do our kitchen. <laughs> so my time was, I was done. And we, got the, we had a great kitchen. It was beautiful, wonderful. The product, finished product was glorious. But no thanks to me. <laughs> I had lost hope, I had gotten discouraged, and I had just about ready to abandon that project. We are meeting uh, the, the, the people of God who have been exiled, who are back in their homeland. And at this point, they had started building the temple, rebuilding the temple. They had got started, and for several years it was going well. They had laid a foundation. They had gotten the walls up. But at some point, they had gotten discouraged. They had gotten distracted. And the building project just went unfinished. For 20 years, the temple simply just sat there, just with a foundation and a few walls. And people went 
on with their lives, went about their business, forgetting about the temple. And that's when God, through Haggai, comes to his people. And God first tells Haggai, sarcastically, I might add, in verse 2, if you don't think God has a sense of humor, you're not reading your Bible. God says to Haggai that the people are saying, Haggai, that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. In other words, people are saying, yeah, God, we'll, we'll, we'll get there eventually. <laughs> but not yet. We, we have other things to do right now. And so instead of focusing their efforts on completing the rebuilding of the temple, that is God's house. Verse 4 tells us they were focused on building in their, their own houses and then settling down in their own houses and neglecting the completion of God's house. And so God asked in verses 4 and 5, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And again in verse 7, God says again, My people, Consider your ways. See, the people of God were motivated now to get their own houses built, to settle down, but had completely neglected God's house. And Haggai is telling them that they have gotten their priorities a little out of whack. Now, you might ask, why was that a big deal? I mean, they had to have a place to live. <laughs> what was wrong with building your own house? And you'd be right. That's not actually the issue. Certainly there's nothing wrong with building your house. But that really was only a symptom. It was a symptom and a picture of a deeper heart issue that was revealed by their actions. You see, for the Israelite, the temple was the place of God's intimate, close dwelling among and midst his people. For the Israelite, it was the most poignant and acute presence of God on the face of the earth. Now, yes, of course, it is true. It's a true statement that God is everywhere. The psalmist tells us that. But God specifically, intentionally, lovingly took up residence, residence in one particular place on earth, in the land of Israel, in the capital of Jerusalem. And it was there that his glory was on full display, right in the midst of God's people. It was there that heaven and earth met. And it was there that the sin issue, which stood in the way of a right relationship between God and his people, was addressed through the sacrificial system. And so it would have been a national tragedy when it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then for 70 years, God's people had been exiled, not only out of their homeland, but away from the land where God's intimate presence had been visibly on display. So for the Israelite to be exiled from their home was bad enough. But to be exiled from the land where you had regular, visible assurances of God's presence with you must have been devastating. And so to come back and begin with great enthusiasm to rebuild this temple 
and then stop and abandon the project completely all the while working on your own home and then settling down was a symptom of a deeper heart issue. It demonstrated the loss of a heart fixed on the worship of and devotion towards God. And so God and his faithfulness and his presence with the people was no longer important, no longer precious to the people. Their confession of faith, the great Shema, the greatest commandment given to all of God's people to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, all of your mind had been brushed aside. God's people had rearranged their priorities and Haggai is coming to bring that to their attention. You see, the, the reality is that you and I were created to worship. You and I are worshiping and glory-giving creatures. We can't get around that. It is in our homo sapien DNA. It's not a matter of whether we will or won't worship something or give our devotion and allegiance to something and to pursue it with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind and time and resources, it's a matter of what we will serve. What we will put at the center of our heart's greatest affection. And the Bible makes the claim this morning that if we put that, if we put anything other than God himself at that place, we will only disintegrate as human beings. And we will dehumanize others in that process and in that pursuit. We will pursue things with the hope of finding satisfaction and flourishing and fulfillment as human beings. But unless it is the one who alone can make good on a promise to be all that we need deep down, all that we long for to give us all that we genuinely long for down deep in our hearts and our souls as human beings, we will only find ourselves more unsatisfied. And so it is, in fact, always a good, appropriate, a beneficial thing to take spiritual inventory of our own lives, to consider our ways. It's always appropriate and good, if not sometimes scary, both as individual followers of Jesus and as a church to consider our ways. And to honestly and courageously assess and evaluate where our priorities are and ask ourselves the hard question, is there anything that has taken priority in my life away from the one who alone can ultimately satisfy? It was the endeavor that King David engaged in when he prayed humbly and courageously. Search me, O God. Search me, oh God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's anything, any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. King David wants to be fulfilled as the human being he was created to be. He wants to walk in that everlasting way. And so he says, God, I'm an open book. That's a scary prayer. <laughs> But King David trusted enough in the faithfulness and the goodness of his God that he could boldly and courageously ask that question. 
The truth is we can all get distracted, even by ordinarily very good things, good things. And over time, can allow our own priorities and our allegiances to shift. And just like building houses for the Israelites was not a bad thing in itself, we are often inclined to misprioritize even the good things in our lives. Again, it's not that they're bad in themselves. It's just that when we make them ultimate things, when they begin to crowd out the room in our hearts for our attention to our need and our desire for intimacy with our Savior, Jesus Christ, and making him the primary object of our worship and our attention, our allegiance, they will only leave us wanting more because they were never intended. Good things were never intended to be ultimate things. And Jesus gets this and he exhorts us. He encourages us to rightly prioritize our life pursuits. When he says, seek first my father's kingdom, seek first his righteousness, all these other things will be added unto you. There's a place for them. As C.S. Lewis put it, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. So my question to you, my friends this morning, is there anything right now in your life that were it taken away from you would be absolutely devastating? Not simply that you would be sad or that it would cause you to grieve. After all, again, there's so many things in our lives, good things, relationships, jobs, careers, finances, good things that are designed, that were we to lose them, that it would hurt. After all, take, take, take relationships, for example. Yes, we were designed at creation. It was not good for us to be alone. We were designed to enjoy fulfilling relationships. But this side of the fall, that's not guaranteed. And so, yes, to lose a relationship, there's an appropriateness to grieve that this side of the fall. Even be depressed for a time. It would be painful. But, but, what I'm talking about is if something is taken away it would cause you crushing emotional devastation. And even would sense, even allow a subtle, even bitter anger or cynicism towards the world or to God to begin to settle in. Is there something that fits that characterization? If so, it's just possible that that thing has taken the place of Jesus Christ as your ultimate priority. And the Bible would actually make the claim this is this is not something that we do well on our own to honestly assess ourselves. In uh, Hebrews chapter three, the writer encourages God's people with these words. He says, exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The writer of Hebrews knows that on our own, we're not the best assessors of our own spiritual well-being. We can easily deceive ourselves. And so we all need others in our lives that they know they have our permission to sometimes raise a mirror gently, but raise a mirror up to our heart. Someone we can ask honest questions with as we're 
in decision-making processes. Someone who can hear us out and give helpful, Lord willing, redemptive feedback, if not difficult feedback. Haggai was that for these people of God. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Perhaps it's a community group. Perhaps it's someone in a community group. But is there anyone right now, is there someone that can help give you outside perspective and someone to whom you're willing to listen? Now the people, the beauty is they hear Haggai's message and they, they change, they repent. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. They listen. They listen to what Haggai had to say. And so then Haggai goes on. God goes on through his prophet Haggai and gives further reminder of the preciousness and the value of simply knowing and being in right relationship and being in and enjoying and having right communion with our God from the second part of the passage. In chapter 2, God says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house, the temple that they're rebuilding, in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? See, when King Solomon built the original temple, it was a spectacle to see. The finest metals and wood were used to construct it and create a site that would take your breath away. In 1 Kings 7, we read about all the resources that went in to enhance, enhance the beauty of the temple. And kings and queens were told from distant lands actually came to experience the specter of the site. It was magnificent. But now these people, post-exile, as they've rebuilt the temple, they were not well off, as well off financially as King Solomon was when he built the temple. It was a much different time economically for Israel. And apparently, therefore, the newly built temple was nowhere near as glorious and impressive as Solomon's original temple. And God is the one who brings it up. God is the one to mention the elephant in the room. That which people are surely thinking, but not saying. People must again, even after they've re-engaged in the work, after they've repented, they've gone back to building the temple and made that priority, must have been discouraged. As they considered, there would have been elders among them who would have described Solomon's temple. They would have known, had images in their mind of what that must have been like. And now they're looking at this new one and they're discouraged. And so God, through Haggai, speaks again. Chapter 2, be strong, all you people of the land. Work, for I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house shall be even greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. 
God responds essentially telling them that the glory of the temple was never actually the gold. It was never the silver. It was never the bronze. It was never the precious stones or even the size. It was him. It was his presence, his glory in the midst of his people. That was the true wonder and beauty of the temple. And so God says, emphasizing his point, hear me again. I am with you. Fear not. Be strong. Do not be discouraged. Do not be dismayed by comparing what you are currently experiencing with what you've experienced in the past. Again, God is reiterating, it is he who is ultimately beautiful to his people. Do not perceive or look or assess with your five senses, God is saying, I'm the true beauty. I'm glorious. I will be the one to fill this house with glory. The glory is mine. And in fact, there's coming a day when the latter glory will be even greater than the former. And so how? How will God do this? Well, earlier we sang a song and you might have heard the melody and then started singing and thought, wait, are we in Advent yet? I thought we were still in ordinary time. In addition to the fact that it's just good to sing uh, Advent songs because you only sing them once a year if you only sing them at Advent. In addition to that, <laughs> the reason we sang that song is because there was a line in the uh, first verse, the last line. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every heart, every longing heart. That line comes from this passage in Haggai. When God says, I will shake the nations so that all the treasures of the nations shall come in, the word translated in our ESV, treasures, can also be translated as desire. The desire. And so this is an in, at least an indirect messianic illusion, if not a full-blown direct messianic illusion here to Jesus Christ. The dear, the one who is the dear desire of every nation. So that the gospel writer John, when he starts his gospel, as he's describing Jesus, says the word became flesh, dwelt among us. That is, he tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That tabernacle there, that dwelt among us, that being present with us, that's temple language. And that is telling us that Jesus, John is saying Jesus now fully embodies in person. God's commitment. I am with you. Jesus is God's ultimate demonstration to his commitment and his promise. I am with you. And furthermore, as he does so, and as we experience Jesus, we see God's glory. We experience God's glory. Jesus often said things, even in his own ministry, that would have been very blasphemous to the religious leaders in his day had anyone else besides Jesus say it. He says things like something greater right now than the temple is with him. Elsewhere, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. He upsets the status quo and the temple authorities when he flips over the money changers tables. He runs people out. How does he have the authority to do that? How does he have the audacity to do that? It's because Jesus is making the claim. I am the greater temple. 
I am the one who is in your midst. I will be the one who will be for you. I will be with you. So that Paul could say in Colossians 4, in Jesus, all the fullness, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is the way that God brings the glory back to his temple. And so to know and experience Jesus is to know the God of Israel, the one who claims to be the one true God, the creator, the redeemer of humanity. And I know as a pastor, I, I recognize there, there, there likely come times, and maybe you've already experienced them, when you're tempted just a bit, perhaps a little discouraged, maybe even a little jealous. When you see other ministries, other churches, other pastors, you see their success. It can be distracting. It can be demoralizing. When you see others that are bigger, have more resources, have more influence. But the reality is, the beauty and the glory of any gospel ministry is not the resources. It's not the influence. It's not the size of the ministry itself. The beauty and the glory is the very Savior and the Redeemer and the King at the center of our gospel message. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save and to redeem and to renew sinners, people like you and me who don't have it all together. <laughs> and it will one day ultimately put all things back to right in this world. We have access now to something far greater than the temple. We have access to the beautiful Savior, the dear desire of every nation. Res Prez, my friends, as, as you move into this next season of your life, now that you have your senior pastor here, I encourage you, I challenge you, double down on your mission and your vision, where in both statements, Res Prez puts the gospel at the very center. In both the mission and vision statement, the gospel is at the very center. And crassly speaking, that was strategic. <laughs> that was intentional. As I've been seeking other potential pastoral positions around the New York area, because ultimately all three of my boys have said they want to live in New York. My wife and I are thinking if we're ever going to, if God ever gives us grandkids and we want to be, you know, New York is probably going to need to be around New York. It's been interesting, and I'll just say, I'll just, I'll, I'll give you this caveat. I'm, I've, I've actually kind of, because I'm, I'm kind of geographically looking, I've, I'm looking at a multitude of different, not a multitude, but several different denominations, let's put it that way. And it's been interesting, to say the least, to see what some churches advertise as they're looking for a pastor. Even on their front page of their website, what their focus is, what they value. I kid you not, one church tells you right off the top, we are determined to be the green church. Okay. Keep scrolling. Or is that slide right, left? Which way is that? Swipe left? Is that right? I don't know. I didn't know these weren't around when I was. One church, one church touted their 
100-year-old pipe organ. And their need for a pastor who understood the wonder and beauty of music and ministry and how the pipe organ would contribute to that mission. Other churches you have witnessed, even churches who would claim that their gospel-centered ministries, gospel-centered churches, get distracted and at least subconsciously become more concerned about programs. Personalities take over the focal point. Other things become what is venerated and where allegiance is placed. My challenge to Res Press, cherish the gospel. Continue to make that the center of all of your ministry endeavors. There will come time when you will have to make decisions financially. What kind of ministry endeavors will we do next? And there'll be all sorts of different reasons and arguments made for this or that. And all the arguments should be made and you should listen. <laughs> but don't ever let the need to put more people in the pew or the need to bring in more money into the offering plate as the center and basis for why you're doing a ministry endeavor. Keep the gospel. Jesus Christ at the center because that is the unique gift you have to Madison, Wisconsin. You have something more precious than gold to express, to live out, to communicate to your neighbors the gospel of Jesus. Keep that at the core and center of all that you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that ultimately, Jesus, you have come. You have dwelt among us. You have been the fulfillment of this passage. You truly are. When we rightly get to know you, understand who you are, you rightly, it is right to say, you are the true, the dear desire of all nations. Jesus, give us the courage, both as individuals, as a church, to when it's necessary from time to time to consider ourselves, to consider our ways, be open to hear how you might lead, but at all times, may res pres, may I, may we keep your, the good news of your gospel as the center. May that be so precious to us that we would never, ever think that some wonderful, beautiful, even beautifully marketed program might be the thing that Madison needs, but rather we would continue, may Res Pres continue to both live out and to express and to communicate this precious gem, beautiful diamond of the gospel that we have in Jesus. Jesus, may you stay at the center. 
Give us the courage and humility to be able to do that going forward. We pray these things for your sake.